Hello and welcome to episode 3 of the Club Chimera podcast. My name is Jamie Club, and my intention with these shows is to discuss various issues in the world of martial arts and self-protection that have inspired my teaching, training and writing. If you're interested in the material I cover, please check out the show notes at the end of this program and also my website, clubchimera.com. This episode is the second part of Galahad's Goal. If you're new to this podcast, I recommend that you download the first part. Those who listened to the previous episode will recall that I discussed the martial arts quest. That is uh, the quest that we all go on to some degree to find what we want from the martial arts world. This brought in the concept of the dojo hopper, which is a term that I've uh, often heard for martial arts cross trainers, but I think is quite different from the serious martial arts cross trainer, who is arguably um, as dedicated, or if not more dedicated, to the study of martial arts than someone who just sticks with one particular school or style. Whereas the dojo hopper doesn't seem to have any sort of sense of direction and never hangs around in one particular school for very long. They ask various different questions. One question which is asked by both dojo hoppers and serious martial artists alike is whether a particular style is any good for self-defense. This led me on to giving my criteria for what makes an effective self-defense system. Self-defense being the physical skills component to self-protection. Criteria I gave were the three Ps, two of which were covered in the previous episode. That is preemption and proactivity. When we start this episode, we'll go straight into the third P, which requires quite a lot of discussion, and we will return to martial arts quests in general. I hope you enjoy the show. Pressure testing provides the live element that is required for effective self-defense training. All self-protection and martial arts schools are in danger of becoming too insular and are developing dojo technique. These are strategies, tactics and techniques derived from artificial experiences. This can occur in all forms of training. However, never is it more damaging than when nothing is tested. Without pressure, an entirely new reality is created in the minds of the martial artists and fighting methods are inevitably shaped by compliance. Even the historical weapon wielder who cites his sacred scrolls for verification that he's preserving a killing art will move differently than his warring predecessors who routinely tested their skills against other fighters. Two types of postmodern arguments are often offered by those who do not believe that self-defense orientated pressure tests are necessary. One is offered by those who put it that because reality can never be safely recreated in the gym, it is pointless to do any form of pressure testing. They conclude, learning the techniques with compliant partners is sufficient. After all, we should be content in the knowledge that the art being taught has already been battlefield tested by those who created it, and no further tests are necessary. The other puts it, that training in a full contact combat sport negates the need to do any scenario-based work. You'll be conditioned to fight, and you'll be actively training effective techniques against other well-conditioned fighters. It is my disagreement with both of these arguments that makes it difficult for me to fit into any single martial arts tribe. Having said that, both arguments, which are often offered by martial artists with diametrically opposing opinions, make valid points. Argument 1 is a decent wake-up call for everyone who professes to teach self-protection, or indeed for those who make the brash statement that what they do is as real as it gets. I'm not a fan of the theatre of what might be termed scenario-based bean counting, where instructors try to set up endless different situations to replicate reality. 
argument one really highlights the deficiencies in this theatre of self-defence. Quite simply, you cannot have students training with enough frequency and with enough realistic pressure in unsafe environments. Ground fighters should drill their techniques on the tarmac of a car park, but you cannot realistically expect everyone to regularly have their heads smashed into it and their backs dragged along it. However, just because you cannot actually gouge someone in the eyes as part of your regular sparring doesn't mean you cannot take apart aspects of real fighting and test them. Therefore, scenario training should be a series of generic situations that reinforce consistent and adaptable techniques randomly applied to shake things up a bit but ultimately testing core principles. This allows the student to be tested on certain likely aspects of a counter-assault. It makes the test quite intense and strict time limits promote both the explosive actions inherent in such real-life situations as well as the sense of urgency. The student should acknowledge and evaluate the safety element of the test or combative flaw in a debrief to ensure that no one is deluding themselves and also so that this aspect may be addressed in another pressure test. By doing this, in line with what Ian Abernethy calls the training matrix, a student can develop a comprehensive approach to real-life combat. You don't have to go through the theatre of trying to recreate every type of scenario. You do need self-defence pressure tests. Just to address the original argument, the argument one, I don't agree that we should keep our trust in any system. Everything should be routinely tested within context and the scientific method should prevail. I think it's a cop-out to say just because you cannot recreate reality, you shouldn't do your best to test certain core principles under pressure. Numerous confirmed case studies can be seen and examined to verify the efficiency of many techniques. The vast majority, if not all of these techniques, can be trained with reasonable levels of safety in a school. It's not enough to know that a technique will work. We need to know that we can pull off this technique against a resisting enemy. Because we all can't be Batman and stalk the knights of violent criminals to apprehend, our training partners will have to suffice, and we need to reuse those training partners so we don't need to be damaging them. Moving on to argument two. There is no denying the huge attributes offered from full contact combat sports. This is why argument two is even harder for me to refute. You may have gathered from my Protecting the Front Line podcast. I'm a big fan of training in combat sports, and in fact, the combat sport training probably takes up far more time of my coaching these days than my actual self-defense training, despite my self-protection training in general being my main area of interest. If that sounds confusing, then please do go back to Protecting the Front Line, which is episode one of my series of Club Chimera podcasts. I think it is probably healthier and more productive to work within the attribute training area, which is where I put combat sports, longer than within the world of reality-based self-defense, which should be restrictive and extremely minimalistic if it is staying true to its objectives. The experienced Nak Moy, Western boxer, wrestler and mixed martial artist who's been around a bit, knows that most martial artists who have little experience in combat sports are unlikely to be especially proficient in handling a real-life assault. On average, Western boxers hit hardest and with the most efficiency when it matters. Wrestlers are terrifyingly effective at the clinch range. Whatever fight science and shows of that ilk will tell you, Thai boxers are not the sort of people you want to trade kicks with, let alone exchange elbow and knee strikes with. And I've seen many an oversized strongman totally owned on the ground against submission fighters, particularly those experienced in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. However, without adaption, the combat sport does not provide a sufficient base for self-defense hard skills. There are several reasons for this, and I'm not going to go into them all, but I will address an overlooked one that relates to pressure testing. A match fight, that is a fight between two consenting fighters, has a different dynamic to an assault. The match fight is symmetrical by nature. 
Regardless of whether there are any rules, there's likely to be to and fro between the two fighters. They're likely to circle each other, they're likely to feign, and use various tactics that have the explicit objective to dominate their opponent. This is what we see throughout the mammalian animal kingdom, when animals of the same species square off. No one is denying that serious injuries and deaths can occur, or that dirty tactics might be used, but the way both sides move is the distinguishable feature of the match fight. An assault is different. This is an asymmetrical encounter between predator and prey. Here the predator human sees his prey human as a target rather than an opponent. This isn't about dominance, in that one human is trying to prove he's a better fighter than the other human, but about getting something from a perceived quarry. The assault is an explosion designed to quickly immobilise the prey so that the predator may achieve what he wants. When an unarmed predator decides to strike, he does so in a way that is different from the timed series of combinations thrown by a stand-up fighter. Video footage of assaults of this nature often reveal a very fast series of blows coming from one hand in rapid succession. Likewise, the counter-assaulter, the perceived prey, does not fight in the same manner as a counter-fighter in a match fight. His training is all about doing what is necessary to exit the situation. The longer he stays at the scene of the violence, the more likely matters will worsen for everyone involved very quickly. Try boxing or wrestling with someone who keeps running away. It's a very frustrating experience, but a distinguishing feature of a self-defense pressure test. At this point, it's worth pointing out that the pressure ordeal is something quite different to what I've been describing. A pressure ordeal is more of a punitive type of training designed to harden a student's fortitude or desensitise them to aggressive behaviour. A pressure ordeal is designed for a student to achieve a clearly positive result. You only lose a pressure ordeal if you simply give up. There are a range of activities under the banner of pressure ordeal, from certain combat conditioning exercises or circuits to facing off against shouting people dressed in 1950s alien outfits. The pressure can and should be intelligently varied. One might regard the lower end of pressure testing to be a form of pressure ordeal, as a student should generally achieve their fighting objective. This is where their partner is more like a coach than an opponent. The pressure then can be increased until it starts becoming competitive, which is where the true pressure testing starts. In sporting terms, we start with light sparring. Neither side is allowing the other to win, but there's a consensual agreement to be relaxed. From here, you can have various gradients of pressure all the way up to the closest one might consider to be a genuine fight. Pulling these numerical figures out of the air, at 60% we can imagine light sparring. Most students find that 70-75% to level of resistance is the sweet spot for learning. It's particularly the case when you're doing specific sparring. This is when you test specific tactical technique. You're getting an opportunity to do that against somebody who's going at a fairly heavy rate of sparring, but not so heavy that you're going to be seriously punished for getting the technique or tactic wrong. It's really good to train at 60% to begin with and then to ratchet it up throughout the training session with a trusted partner. You can run an entire lesson on sparring. The three Ps are my hard and fast rules for grail hunters who want to know whether a particular school is teaching good self-defense skills. Needless to say, if all three of these areas have been taught correctly, then a fourth P can be added, that is perspiration. Self-defense is hard work. Physical conditioning not only better forges the tools you are training, but it also should develop mental fortitude, the will to survive. I think these rules provide enough scope for a subject that has an almost endless list of variables, as well as allowing for individual preferences on fighting style. Virtually any established martial art can teach these elements, either as an integrated part of their system or as a separate add-on element. 
If the latter, then the teacher needs to accept certain incongruities. This shouldn't be seen as a bad reflection on the core martial art, but as an act of maturity that can be all the more enriching. Recently I've seen some amusing internet comic strip satires on grail hunting. One of them shows a successful hunter holding a glowing parchment aloft that reveals the sacred truth. The truth, it turns out, is that you're more likely to be injured by your training partner than you are to be involved in a violent incident. During an interview with the renowned Straight Blast Gym and self-defence teacher Carl Tanswell, Carl mused that his students were so intent on learning self-protection they should get more medical checkups at the doctor. It's a good point. Self-protection is important, but regard it the same way as you would regard a first aid training session. Train it, maintain it, adopt certain healthy habits, but if you are really interested in developing your combative knowledge, then know when to switch off from it and explore the dimensions of sport or art. This brings us onto another type of grail hunter. There are others that say they are seeking something much higher from their martial arts training. Such thinking, I've concluded, is more modern than many would like to admit. Once we have stripped away myths about the Shaolin Temple and the religiosity of the samurai, we find that much of martial arts history is unsurprisingly about using and dealing with violence. Philosophy and spirituality are incidental concepts often mused upon in peacetime and later retroactively made to fit a traditional art. Spiritual practices and teachings of martial arts pioneers haven't come directly from their martial arts training. The likes of Yushiba Moyang, who founded Aikido, and Sun Lutang, one of the most influential Chinese martial arts writers, blended their religious and philosophical views with their martial arts teaching. This was revolutionary in their respective Japan and China around the turn of the 20th century. Prior to this, it was unlikely anyone would have made such connections any more than a medieval knight would have connected his Christianity directly to the practice of fighting. Before I get accused of being either A. Superficial materialist or B. Hypocritical about my own incongruity about self-defence being rounded up into a 10-hour course where the rest of the time could be spent engaging in learning actual martial arts, I would like to make my case for the defence. Firstly, anything can be made spiritual philosophical. And people have made virtually anything spiritual or philosophical. The dedicated martial artists, or dare I say craftsmen, will derive something more from their work than aesthetic charm or its utility. That something might simply be fulfilment, or even joy. The modernists will argue there is an underrated and understated sense of appreciation that comes from valuing practicality and efficiency. Secondly, it is precisely because I think self-protection should be put on its own short and minimalistic path that I argue hard skills research and development is better done within another context. Western boxing becomes a vastly more sophisticated punching art by getting rid of its grappling element and making gloves mandatory. It's unlikely that legendary doormen like John Awesome Anderson would have developed the short-range hook if this cultural change had not occurred. Towards the end of the 19th century, the hook was being criticised by those boxers, such as William Billy Madden, who disliked the arts transition away from self-defence and into sport, or more specifically, from bare knuckles to gloves. They saw the many slaps delivered from the inside of the gloves being scored as indication that the hook was a product of the muffler gloves that Jack Broughton had first introduced, and considered the straight punch to be superior. He would not live to see how the swinging haymaker of old would be refined into a highly versatile natural body weapon used to great effect in self-defence, bare-knuckle and mixed martial arts fights. 
Before the 1990s, relatively small pockets of the martial arts community respected the importance of ground fighting. 19th century boxing commentators who discussed self-defence often poured disdain on the undignified way Greco-Roman wrestlers fought on the ground. Indeed, most wrestling styles focus on not being put on the ground and enthroning their opponent rather than finishing things in the dirt. Even judo, with its excellent ground fighting skills, has historically and recently tried to promote the throwing side of their art over submissions, which are often finished on the ground. Kano Jigaro, the art's founder, included the ground fighting aspect of jiu-jitsu somewhat reluctantly, believing much as his contemporaries in Western boxing believed that there was little art in fighting on the ground. He might have a point that fighting to throw somebody is arguably the most difficult range of fighting, but Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu should be applauded for the huge amount of progress they've made with the ground fighting range. Throwing might be more difficult, but I believe ground fighting is overtaking all ranges in its level of sophistication. Similarly, the wrestling arts I mentioned have ended up developing a superb base for both controlling a striker and preventing a takedown. Likewise, if all you want is discipline, there are better institutions that will teach this both in physical and mental form than your average martial arts school. It really might seem like heresy. After all, one of martial arts' strongest selling points is discipline. However, I see your rows of perfectly sequenced uniform martial artists and raise you any number of dance troops performing far more complicated routines with at least as much energy. If physical fitness is your goal, then go straight for fitness training. Martial arts might make you fit, and most good schools promote all ranges of fitness. However, if your real goal is to just get stronger, increase cardiovascular fitness and become more flexible, then the technique work and mental side to martial arts training will just become a distraction. Then there are those people who look around for the style that will suit them. They seem to resemble Goldilocks more than any other folkloric hero. Once again, my view is to look for the teacher in an environment that best suits you, or, if you are chasing a certain style, look at a specific skill set you wish to learn. However, if you are cross-training, don't waste the boxing teacher's time telling him how important it is to learn how to fight on the ground. He's helping you get your jab right and doesn't really want to hear about this being the ideal opportunity to take someone down into an arm triangle. In fact, and this is worthwhile advice, when you go to learn somewhere different, don't use it as an opportunity to preach about another martial art or even another school. These types of martial artists seem to haunt short instructor courses and just serve to irritate. If you're going to be a hunter, try to be a silent one. The Grail Quest is a peculiar element to the overall Arthurian legend, and all the more apt for the purposes of this podcast episode. With incongruity being one of our main themes, let's see this metaphor to its bitter end. The original version of the story probably had nothing to do with King Arthur, and the popular saga of today feels more like a little shoehorned into the overall narrative. Besides a prophecy supposedly made by Merlin which smacks of a bit of medieval romantic retroactive continuity, the Grail is not referred to anywhere in the earlier stories. If we were to look at the entire Arthurian epic as a long-running television series, I see the Grail quest as being more of a spin-off show. For a start, Arthur withdraws from undertaking the quest knowing it means the end of his beloved brotherhood. Then we have the introduction of the knight destined to be successful, where all others fail, the noble Sir Galahad. Again, for the sake of the mythology fans listening in, I should mention that there are many different variations on this part of the tale, with earlier accounts giving the credit to Sir Percival for finding the grail, and other accounts saying that Galahad did not complete his quest alone. However, Galahad is the most prominent version, and is quite good for presenting the idealism of grail hunting. Through the eyes of a critic, Galahad isn't a great character. What makes the stories of King Arthur so endearing are the flaws of the various personalities. Lancelot, 
Guinevere, Uther, Tristan, Isolde, Owain, and even the sorcerer Merlin in King Arthur himself. Such flaws just makes them appear more human and interesting. Galahad stands out from most of them in this respect. He's generally seen as being flawless, a saintly figure who makes up for his father Lancelot's sins. Galahad commits no wrongs, proves himself to be a better fighter than any of Arthur's knights, who challenge him and succeeds where they fail in the Grail quest. Again, if we were to look at the Arthurian epic as a TV series, Galahad gets brought in late in the show as a one-dimensional copy of the titular character to save the day. It's like that his creators just decided to reuse various plot devices. Galahad turns up as the secret son of Lancelot, conceived under enchantment, just as Arthur had been, and appears with a conveniently empty scabbard. Said scabbard is quickly filled by another sword embedded in a stone. All the other knights have failed to draw said sword, but Galahad waltzes in and pulls it out easily before finding a place at the round table with his name magically inscribed for him. If this TV series was one of those massively entertaining yet cynical cartoon shows based on a toy line that my generation watched in the 80s, Galahad would be the new must-have action figure brought out just in time for Christmas. At the time, we might have bought the bait and embraced our brand new saviour. However, years later, when we wax nostalgic about that show, we see this part of the season for what it was, and our favourites remain King Arthur, Lancelot, and all the Generation 1 line of characters. The modern-day martial arts grail hunting ideal is just as improbable as Galahad's abrupt arrival into Arthur's story. Its place in our martial arts training should be seen as just as unimportant to the narrative of our respective journeys. We should see it as a whimsical ideal with no real substance, a fantastical diversion from really getting the most out of our training experiences. This fantasy journey might take the form of pressure point courses that will require you to no longer have to sweat blood in the gym. One of the great mistakes of martial arts subculture is to look upon the pioneers of the various arts through rose-tinted glasses to turn them into saint-like characters and to further believe that such individuals can be emulated if their teachings are followed to the letter. Styles of martial art are unique to the people who create them, consciously and unconsciously developed to benefit the strengths and weaknesses of the creator. These teachings will inevitably evolve first through the art's founder and then through his heirs. When we see a famous martial arts pioneer presented like Sir Galahad as the perfect combination of mental, spiritual and physical strength in possession of a holy grail of wisdom, we might conclude we have left the realms of reality. The good coaches are more like the other knights of the round table, flawed but learning from their mistakes and appreciative of certain limitations. As for the grail, we need to be more utilitarian about what we're really looking for, rather than trying to create a fantasy object that will answer our prayers. The main reason for this is because you're being honest about your objective and are finding what serves it best as opposed to trying to fit what you want to be the truth. Being objective-driven helps solve the problem with incongruity. When you have your true north, if you'll pardon the cliché, some things fall into place and other things can either be discarded or assigned to another journey. Good self-defence skills and good martial arts skills come from hard work, both mentally and physically. There are no real secrets but there are constant personal discoveries. Thanks again, everybody, for your support in the previous shows. I hope you enjoyed this one. I have a few up-and-coming projects you might be interested in. Check out my ebooks, Mordred's Victory, and When Parents Aren't Around, which are available on Amazon Smashwords and through Excellence Publishing. And also have a look out for my first instalment of the Bullshit Zoo series entitled Wrong Foo. That's due out soon. I'm also going to be running an open seminar in my local area of Oxfordshire. For those of you who don't know, I no longer run a club. 
And I've been mainly focusing my efforts in the past few years on teaching private students in groups. However, I think it's about time I organise an event for people who enjoy my work to meet up with those who've trained with me and we get something semi-regular going. So I'll be running a series of seminars centred upon Club Chimera Martial Arts cross-training concepts. It'll be open to all. Be sure to check out our Facebook and Twitter pages for regular updates on that. Don't forget the website. All these links are contained in this episode's show notes. That's all for this episode. Next time I'll be discussing the much-neglected yet fascinating topic of the aftermath. For now, please share this episode far and wide and don't forget to subscribe to it through iTunes or whatever platform you choose. Thanks for listening.